Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Sinead O'Carroll, and this week, what does defund the police mean? Yes, we can. Make America great again. Get Brexit done. Those short, snappy slogans that really stick are a campaign designer's dream. No matter what the ideology, who the political candidate is, or what the human rights campaign is, they can be insanely effective. Yes, we can. Make America great again. Get Brexit done. They can mean everything and nothing all at the same time. That's kind of where the genius lies with them. So, defund the police. Since the end of May, after the killing of George Floyd at the hands of US police officers and in the midst of mass protests in America, those calls to defund the police have gained momentum, helped by that slogan. Those who want it are demanding change. The end of killings like that of George Floyd, Eric Garner, Tamir Rice, Breonna Taylor. Those people want to see stats that say 235 black people were killed by police officers last year made redundant. They also want to see that that figure that shows black Americans are two and a half times more likely to be killed by police than white Americans made redundant. But would defunding police change this? And what does that even mean, defunding the police? What would it entail? Honestly, it's a hard one for us to get our heads around this side of the Atlantic. I spent the weekend looking things up and the meaning did vary depending on what I was reading or who I was listening to or where in the spectrum they fell. Therefore, I'm delighted to have Matthew Iglesias of Fox.com on the explainer today because explaining is his business after all. Uh, Matthew, thank you so much for joining us. As I mentioned there, it's a really short, snappy slogan and it has entered our lexicon even to the point that we're doing an explainer podcast in Ireland about it. Um, Can you explain why it has come to the fore now? Well, you know, as you were saying in in your introduction, right, a a good, short, snappy slogan can capture the imagination. And it speaks to a lot of people's desire for big fundamental change. They feel like the United States has been talking about this question of police brutality, police misconduct for a long time. They want something major, something that goes beyond reform. Um, At the same time, there's a a lot of questions as to what does that slogan actually mean? Uh, In the most literal sense, you could be saying, well, let's spend a little bit less money on our police department, spend a little bit more money on on something else, you know, on on playgrounds, on mental health services. Uh, But but I think that the activists behind this idea really means something more like what I would I would consider reimagine the police, reimagine policing to be something maybe closer to what you have in, in Ireland or the United Kingdom, where most of the officers are unarmed and it's less of a military style presence in people's neighborhoods. Uh, that said, it's a banner slogan that encompasses a lot of different people's ideas. You talk a little bit there about militarization. Can you tell us a little bit about the makeup of police forces in the US, uh, what they're charged to do and how they go about their business? In America, policing is very localized. Uh, Each city will have its own police force. Some very small communities have their own police forces. And there's a a lot of sort of disparity from one to another uh, about their approach. But our officers tend to, they they all carry guns, they carry other non-lethal weapons. And increasingly, departments have obtained actually military surplus equipment. After the demobilization from the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, a lot lot of the the equipment that the American military was using abroad has gone back into police forces. So you can see pictures of armored personnel.
personnel carriers or, you know, really armored up Humvees on the streets of, of America when there's these protest type situations. And in many cities, the racial and ethnic composition of the police force is much, much wider than the city that they police. That's not true universally, but it is true in New York, in Chicago, in Los Angeles. Uh, it's true in, in Baltimore. It's true in Minneapolis, which was the epicenter originally of these protests. So you have the specter of often largely white forces with a lot of sort of heavy war-style equipment patrolling largely African-American or Latino neighborhoods and creating an atmosphere of of hostility. And and when people talk about defunding the police, there's a lot of different things that they may mean under that banner, but I think that is the dynamic that they are looking to change. So obviously it's those profiles of mainly white police forces policing a lot more diverse communities has led to not just violent incidents, but more insidious experiences as well from people. Um, And I presume that feeds into why people are so um, vocal about needing change and, and full change, not just small reforms. Yeah, I mean, exactly. You know, behind every incident where someone is actually killed or even seriously injured, there are many incidents of sort of low-level misconduct, harassment, maltreatment. You see in opinion surveys a very large share of the African-American population, particularly of African-American men, say that they have at one time or another in their lives been stopped by the police in a way that they feel was unfair or or abusive. And it's a major factor in the day-to-day lives of uh Black and Latino, especially men in the United States, especially younger ones. And that's sort of the, the, the crisis that defunders are looking to address. At the same time, there's practical question about dollars and cents. And I do think that the, the, the defund movement sometimes overstates actually how much money is going into American police departments. Um, they will sometimes portray it as if our level of spending on policing is far out of line with international norms. But the more and more I look into this, I don't actually think that's true, that where the United States spends much more than European countries is on prisons. Uh, we have uh, incredibly larger share of the population actually in jail or prison at any given time. And consequently, we spend far more money on that. Our, our policing budgets, though, are, are fairly standard compared to to Western Europe or Canada. Those policing budgets, of the figures I read over the weekend, the NYPD budget for policing is over six billion. The entire country spends over 115 billion. That's a scale of money that's hard to comprehend. So just to break it down, what does that include? Is that also money that's spent on incarceration um, or is it just policing on the streets? No, that, that's uh, policing, and it's the what we call the the jail, which is sort of pretrial detention for people. I mean, that is a large budget. At the same time, you know, New York City is, uh, I think, double the the population of the entire Republic of Ireland. Uh, so it's a it's a very large entity. Uh, the budgets for everything are are big, and you know, the New York City public school system is by far the largest sort of line item on the municipal budget. And that's true in every American city. And I've seen people, I've seen defunding activists cite figures where they'll say, oh, well, we're spending so much more on police than we do on youth services, uh, which is a kind of peculiar budget category that just leaves out schools. Uh, So I wouldn't want people looking at this rhetoric from abroad to sort of... uh, 
make the mistake of thinking that that's the only thing we're putting money into in the United States. We have uh, about the same number of police officers per capita as as you have in Ireland. Um, our spending levels are a little bit higher than the Western European norm, uh, but it's really on prisons and incarceration where our numbers are, are kind of through the roof. And of course, these systems uh, relate to one another, right? The, the policing system plays into the penal system. But I think when you kind of dig into it, it's there, it's on incarceration, and of course, on guns, where the United States is such an outlier. One of the things that people would like explained, and maybe you can give the background to it here, um, Matthew, is that on those budgets, obviously in a post-COVID world, there's going to be less money to spend. Um, New York has already said it is going to slash things like education by up to like 30%. Um, other areas that the city needs to fund are, are seeing walloping cuts, but they're trying to keep budgets for policing more or less the same, like a less than 1% cut. In LA, they're actually looking, the LAPD is looking to increase its budget by 123 million. So is that a fair assumption that people are questioning this approach? So during the Great Recession, right, the the financial crisis, 2008, 2009, 2010, there was a lot of need for budget cuts at the state and local level. And most mayors tried to spare their police departments from those cuts. There was, I think, a real sense that you needed to keep investing in public safety. And so education, particularly higher education uh, in the United States, took a real hit at that time. And so part of what the not the theoretical impetus of the defund the police movement, but in a practical sense, what's happening here is we're facing another economic crisis, another round of budget crises. And I think there is going to be pressure to make sure that police departments bear their fair share of that pain. Yeah, as I was saying at the start, there's probably a spectrum of what people mean when they say defund the police. So can you run us through that spectrum? What do people want when they when they are holding up a slogan or holding up a poster with a slogan saying defund the police? What's the practical implementation of it and what would the practical result be? Well, exactly. It's a huge range of things. If, if you look at this and, and you find it confusing, uh, you're not wrong. Um, and it's not because no one's thought about it, but it's because not everyone who uses this slogan means the same thing. So to some people, it's as simple as uh, if there's going to be budget cuts, the police budget needs to be cut too. Uh, for a lot of others, they have this idea that they also call divest and invest. And that's to say they want less money in the entire public safety apparatus and more money into things like mental health services, drug addiction treatment, uh, employment for, for young people. A sort of even bigger idea is, well, should we reimagine what policing in the United States looks like so that it is less of a heavily armed thing, less of a, a, an omnipresent uh, element on the streets of American cities, more sort of community-oriented, more friendly, with more transparency, more accountability. And I think nobody is actually talking about, well, we shouldn't have any law enforcement officers. But it, it becomes a question of, can law enforcement be something very different? And institutionally, can some of the actually existing police departments be in some sense disbanded and reformed in a different way? You mentioned public safety there and that they were shielded from budget cuts mainly for public safety reasons. Is there evidence to back up um, that if you keep policing at the same level or increase it, that communities are safer? 
There are a fair number of, of good studies that I've seen. Uh, Stephen Mello has one. Alex Tabarrok has one. Uh, looking at uh, policing, basically staffing levels and the impact on crime. And they do seem to say that when cities have more police officers out on the streets, you see less crime. A sociologist named Richard Rosenfeld has even looked at a, at a hyper-local level. And if you send extra officers to crime hotspots, you get less crime, not just in that spot, but broadly speaking. So, you know, I it should be a concern that if you cut budgets in an ineffective way, you're going to have a bigger crime problem. Uh, the United States has a much higher homicide rate than other developed countries. Uh, and those homicides, those murders, disproportionately impact the same African-American communities who are impacted by police misconduct. So really, whatever you want to call it, reforming, disbanding, reimagining, uh, you really want to move the country to a, a better equilibrium in terms of the total amount of violence that's happening on our streets and not just cutbacks sort of at random. And it becomes a question of, well, what can you reinvest in? What can you reinvent? What can you actually do? So if the defunding of police actually happens, where would the money that would have been spent there be spent on? What's the proposition? What is the policy's thought on that if it is fulfilled? Right. So, you know, if you look at the sort of policy papers, the books that advocates of defunding say, they're talking about reinvesting the money in other ways of helping people. Uh, a lot of police officers in the United States have been spending a lot of times helping people with drug overdoses. They are normally the first people who respond when there are mental health crises. They have a lot of responsibility for sort of routine traffic enforcement. And so the sophisticated defunding argument is we could take this money, we could reinvest in other kinds of services, that might be a more effective way of helping people, we could save, reserve the armed police for situations in which they're really needed, and they paint a sort of appealing picture. I don't think we know if it would work, but it, it sounds plausible. It, it, you can see why people want to try it. In practice, though, we are looking right now at big fiscal crises, uh, state and local governments have lost tax revenue because of the COVID-19 crisis, and they need to make budget cuts. So we are not in practice talking about reinvesting money in anything. We're talking about how to apportion cuts. Let me just give some practical examples to people, because I think this is maybe where the the Atlantic creates this, creates this big gap um, when we look over to America and there's talk of defunding the police. If I was speeding down the road in my car um, and police had been def defunded, what's the preventative mechanism for me to not do that? Or if I have done it, what's the possible punishment for me of doing it? I think that the defund police or even abolish police vocabulary in this case is misleading to a lot of people. Uh, my understanding is that in a lot of countries, traffic enforcement is done by police officers, and those police officers just don't happen to carry guns around with them all the time. Um, that there is still just a traffic enforcement function that is separate from the armed response function that police also do. And, and it seems to me that that is what is being asked for, to have a lot of these services not performed by people who have all these guns and weapons and that can lead to violent incidents to move to something more like a uh, policing by consent model, I, I think they say in, in the UK. 
obviously you have to have traffic enforcement of some kind. Um, and to me, it introduces confusion to call this defunding the police. But it's what the advocates have sort of hit upon. And I don't know if it's 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 my role to explain, not to second guess. Will there be a place in that for people without police training? So civilians who will take on some of the roles that the police currently do? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of things that police, sworn police officers typically do that doesn't necessarily need to be done by a police officer. If your house is robbed, something like that, you need to file a report. Uh, This happened to me about 10 years ago, you know, and I called up and and they send police officers to my house and they're like, they're police officers. They got, they got guns on their belt. They got tasers. They got this big stick and they're just sitting there with a pen and a pad taking down some facts from me. And, you know, couldn't that be civilian work? Uh, Then you have situations. There was a a man, homeless person last winter. I was very concerned about him. It looked like he was in trouble. You know, I called the city. Um, He he needs an ambulance. They, They send him down, but they also send a police car. And well, why, why do you need that? You know, there was no crime in progress. There was no threat of violence. Um, And that kind of ubiquity of policing in urban American areas uh, is troubling to many people in light of these kind of broader issues that have been brought up by the protests. And so there's a lot of desire to rethink it to bring down the level of of weapons to civilianize some of these functions. But I do have to say the thinking has not been incredibly crisp and precise. As we mentioned during a campaign, that's not always how it works. Um, But do we have a case study of how this or parts or elements of this um, has been borne out? um, Has it worked? Have people been able to study it? Well, so one thing that has been pointed to a lot is a a small city called Camden, New Jersey. This is a community of about 70,000 people. It's right across the river from the city of Philadelphia, which is much larger. But it's a a low-income city. It'd become a very high-crime city. Uh, Also, a, a lot of complaints about the police. And they they disbanded the department and they created a whole new police force uh, outside the context of the old union contract. uh, And they created a new one. And the new police force has been much more effective at combating crime. The murder rate has gone down a lot. They've also generated many fewer complaints from civilians. So that's a kind of happy story about a a radical reform or even a disbanding of of the department. That being said, uh, what they actually did in Camden was increase the number of police officers. So it's not exactly what the abolitionists and, and the radical left would like to think it is, but it is a sign that you can do big changes to policing and maybe get big results. And did they arm as many police officers as previously or was there less presence of guns and weapons in Camden after this? I, I believe that they, they're still all armed with, with small arms. They did get rid of some of the heavy military equipment. I, you know, a big part of the context of policing in America on both sides of this is that we have so many firearms in this country, and not just long guns that people use for for hunting, but easily concealable handguns are very widely present in the United States. And consequently, police officers feel that they need to be armed with with similar weapons. They don't want to be outgunned by by a criminal element out there. Uh, To me, that's at the root of this whole 
problem of why is our homicide rate so elevated and why are the police using so much more force is that ubiquitous presence of guns. If you've ever paid any attention to the gun regulation debate in the United States, uh, you'll know there's a very contentious issue here. It speaks really deeply to people's culture and identity, and no progress has been made at sort of cutting down on widespread firearms ownership. So it, it seems hard to address that angle of the policing problem. But really, if you want to understand why American police forces are such heavily armed entities, it's because the civilian population is also quite heavily armed. Why has defund been the thing that people landed on rather than reform or disband? You know, it's in part because there has been a big movement in parallel to this to sort of big rethinking of the the prison system in the United States, and some of the slogans simply carried over. I would say the biggest reason is a feeling among activists that the slogan of reform can encompass almost anything and can encompass superficial measures. They feel that police departments have been talking about reform for a long time, and that it hasn't delivered results. Uh, Now, I've argued that if you look at it statistically, that big city police departments who have implemented reforms actually have seen results, that the the level of police killings, uh, particularly of African Americans, and very particularly of unarmed African Americans, has actually gone down quite a bit over the past five years. It's fallen about 15%. And now you can argue, uh, of course, that's not good enough. Of course, there's more progress to be made. Um, We're still talking about numbers in the hundreds there. Yeah, quite, quite high. Um, So the question becomes, well, should we say reform is working and we need to continue with it? Or should we say, ah, reform hasn't been good enough. We, we need something bigger. And there's a real hunger. I, I mean, not among most people, but among a substantial minority of the population for something that speaks to the idea of going beyond reform. So that's become defund. Minneapolis is obviously at the epicenter of this. And there was a vote there to defund the police, or at least that's how it was reported Can you tell us a little bit about what that vote was um, and how it could or maybe won't lead to the eventuality of police actually being defunded? Yeah, I mean, I think this Minneapolis situation, it it really shows to an extent how confusing it's been because they take this big vote and then you look into it and you say, well, what's going to happen? And what's going to happen is they voted to initiate a process of studying re-disbanding and reconstituting the police force. So nothing's going to happen, right? It's a it's a study. Uh, it's not to say there won't be any changes, but you could imagine people who wanted to look politically moderate saying, well, we're going to have a commission. We're going to look at some reforms. And we would all say, well, that's a very sort of tepid response. So instead they said, all right, we voted to disband the police force and create a new one. But really all they voted to do is initiate a process of community dialogue and expert analysis and and so on and so forth, which seems sensible. Uh, Minneapolis has had a a lot of these problems. There was a it didn't generate as many protests, but but a situation involving a man named Philando Castile that was really horrifying and, and shocked a lot of people. So they clearly need to change something there. And this has become the manner in which they choose to express that desire for change. In general, in America, are police forces, are police people liked? Are they popular? And has that changed in the past number of weeks? Yeah, so... 
If you look at surveys, police are actually quite popular. People have a good amount of confidence in their local police departments. African Americans express a lot less confidence than white Americans do, but still on average positive ratings. Uh, We have seen those numbers go down. People have watched a lot of things on their television screens. They have seen a lot of video shared. But still most people say that they like their local police force and that they don't want to see police funding cut. They would like to see reforms. There are a lot of specific ideas that do poll well, uh, banning chokeholds, increasing training, requiring more reporting. There's a lot of fragmentation of policing in the United States. So an officer can be fired in one town for misconduct and then go get hired two towns over. That seems really bad to me. Uh, When you ask people about it, they support rule changes that would prevent that. But the idea that policing is fundamentally broken, while it's common on the activist left, there are a lot of people campaigning for that idea, it's not the majority view. It's not a popular position. And that's why you see Joe Biden and other leading members of the Democratic Party staying away from this idea. Yeah, you mentioned a couple of things there that were actually going to be my next two questions. First, the fragmentation of policing. Um, Because we know from our TV screens, from the news footage, from protests, there seems to be a lot of different sets of people in various uniforms and their roles are different, their titles are different, but they all seem to have a security or policing element. Um, What are their jobs? Who are they? And how has this evolved Yeah, so it's a completely different situation. So a typical situation in the United States is that you will have a police force for the city or town. There may also be a sheriff's department, which exists at the county level. Then we have the federal government, which itself has a almost baffling array of police forces. So here in Washington, D.C., where there were protests, uh, the Trump administration brought in a lot of federal officials. And I saw on the streets a sort of mixed group of drug enforcement agency officers, United States Park Police, uh, United States Secret Service, uh, whose main mission is personal protection of the president, plus some National Guard, which is sort of a, a gendarmerie kind of concept, half military, half domestic service, along with the local uh, metropolitan D.C. police department. It's a very confusing situation. In practice, you tend not to see all the different agencies overlapping like that. But the scale of these protests has brought all the different kinds of police out. And it it confuses regular American citizens. It's not a, a customary thing, but it's what's happened here. And it is a big difference between our policing situation and the one that you see in, in a lot of European countries, and certainly in Ireland, where uh, the police is a, a very unified entity. Who holds the power in those situations when things blow up and police forces come in, federal police forces come in, the county ones are there, the city ones are there. Who's who holds the power in that situation? Well, so in Washington, D.C., it's a special kind of federal territory, and ultimately the federal government holds the top authority. Uh, in other American cities, in a day-to-day basis, usually the city's police department is the lead agency for everything. But in a major crisis, the National Guard is controlled by the state governor, and he sort of becomes the, the primary authority. You can have situations in New York where there was a kind of a communications breakdown between the mayor and the governor. 
It was a little unclear who was in charge. And that's been a, a hallmark of their leadership throughout the COVID-19 crisis and, and many other things. Um, it, it, basically a bad situation. We, we rely on state and local officials being able to coordinate with each other to make these things work because the rules are not incredibly clear on paper. And final question, because it's hard to talk about America, uh, Matthew, without thinking about what's looming in front of you in five months time with the presidential election. And I did notice Kamala Harris, who may or may not be Joe Biden's vice presidential pick, but she avoided having to answer a question about whether she would uh, support a defund the police action. Is it a poisonous slogan for any Democratic candidate to run with? Or conversely, would it hurt their base if they don't run with it? I think that Democrats think that this slogan is bad for them and they are not going to pick it up. Uh, Former Vice President Biden has rejected it very clearly. Uh, James Clyburn, a member of Congress who's a sort of very senior African-American political figure, uh, he has rejected it, has told activists he thinks they should stop trying to hijack these protests. Um, Kamala Harris is is often uh, a little ambiguous in these kind of pressure moments, but I, I don't think she'll be for it. The question then becomes, yes, I mean, do you demoralize the base too much? There are clearly lots of people out there in the streets campaigning, people who feel strongly about this. Biden is going to need their votes to defeat Trump. At the same time, you know, he is clearly promising a vision of reform that is different from disbanding or defunding. He's talking about putting extra money into departments that enact procedural reforms and trying to end this problem of officers who've been fired shuffling from one department to another. He just needs a snappy slogan for it. Thanks so much, Matthew, for coming in and explaining all of that to us. Thank you for listening to The Explainer and a big thank you to Matthew for his help on this episode. If you enjoyed this chat and learned something, we have loads more for you. Check out our back catalogue where you'll find lots of other shows on the coronavirus, but also about one about Daniel Kinahan and why he has been in the news so much lately, something that has come to prominence again this week. This episode of The Explainer was brought to you by executive producer Christine Bowen, producer Aoife Barry and assistant producer and tech operator Nikki Ryan. If you're enjoying these episodes, please leave us a review and rating wherever you listen to them. And more importantly, share with a friend who you think will enjoy them. Thank you and catch you next time. <laughs>